Farming with strawberries can be costly, but its health benefits means it is sought after by consumers. This week, we share a guide for new farmers eager to produce this potentially lucrative crop in Mzanzi. Dr. Magdalene Salies, the Policy and Research Officer at the South African National Seed Organization, joins us to unpack an appeal lodged against a decision to classify all new breeding techniques under the Genetically Modified Organisms Act 15 of 1997. Now we understand that all farmers have to start somewhere, and choosing a profitable commodity can change the game for any new farmer, but you can now level up with a list of new farming trends this year. And our book of the week is The Simple Path to Wealth, Your Roadmap to Financial Independence and a Rich Free Life by J.L. Collins. And our farmer tip of the week is about registering your farming business and it comes from accountant Lungelo Nkwanya. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 112 of Food from Zanzi's podcast called Farmers Inside Track. I'm Don Numdu, the manager for audience and engagement at Food from Zanzi, and my co host is Food from Zanzi's head of news, Duncan Masiwa. Hey Dawn, it's great to be back. Listen, I'm really excited about our new Farmers Inside Track Academy. Now, of course, our training days or what we like to call farmer clinics are filling up quickly. So for those of you who can hear the sound of my voice, make sure that you book your seat. And of course, you can do that on www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za. But to kick off, we now share that promised guide to farming with strawberries in Mzanzi. Nicole Ludov chats to Sander van Eerden, a horticulture and post-harvest production lecturer at Alsenberg Agricultural Training Institute in the Western Cape. Thank you so much, Dawn and Duncan. Sandra, can you tell us how you got into horticulture? I got into horticultural studies because I've always loved being outdoors and exploring the environment. And some of my earliest memories or of me playing in my mom's vegetable patch and helping with the weeding and watering and just being close to the soil in general. So after matric, I started studying soil science. And then after my first course of horticultural studies, I changed my major to horticulture, which would then allow me to work with the soil as well as the plants. And plants have always fascinated me, the big miracle of plants. I've never regretted it. It's always been my passion and I love doing what I do every day. What are some of the things farmers need to start a strawberry operation? It is good to start with the soil that you're going to plant in. Know your soil, have it tested, know which limitations there are. Strawberries like well-drained soil of slightly acid and with a good organic matter component. Strawberries are also usually planted on ridges, little mounds that run in rows. And also, it's very, very good to cover that little mound with a plastic sheet with holes punched in that would suppress the weeds, weeds that grow around the plants because you can't spray, of course, close to your strawberry plants and will also keep all the little ground-living, soil-living organisms away like little beetles and worms. Strawberries would prefer temperate conditions climate conditions without extremely hot or extremely cold temperatures. 
They are not frost tolerant. They usually start flowering in the spring, September, early October, and harvest can take place November, December. Very high temperatures or a heat wave would dramatically shorten your lifespan of the fruit and it would be detrimental to the quality. Strawberry fields should be renewed every five years or so. When you plant it in your first year, you only harvest in the second year, the second, third and fourth if your plants are in good condition and you've taken good care of them regarding nutrients and water. And then in the fifth year, you would rotate your crop and plant strawberries, a new planting in a different location, and then only plant in the first location after about three or four years. So it's always a good idea to rotate your crops. Like I said, you could be in production in your second year with your best crops in your second and third year, and then replace your plants in the fifth year. There are so many important things, but firstly, you must choose your suitable location, the climate, the weather patterns, hail or wind, or the prevalence of heat waves. Then the second, but just as important, the water. There must be a reliable supply of good quality water right through the growing season, whenever you need it, because without that, the farming will just not work. And then, of course, the soil must be suitable and the infrastructure. You must be close to a big center or so because the shelf life of strawberries aren't that long and you have to get it from the field to the retailer to the consumer as soon as possible. So roads, electricity, cold rooms, transport to get your product to the market, All of that, I would say, are the first things you must consider when you want to begin with strawberry farming. And finally, do you have any tips or pieces of advice for aspiring strawberry farmers? To find out as much as possible on your location as well as the plant you're going to grow. You must choose your supplier, the nurseryman that you buy your plants from very carefully. You must know that it is of the correct cultivar and it must be disease-free and strong plants. And then I would advise you to join a study group, go to workshops, join the association for strawberries in your area and always keep learning and always respect the environment. Thanks, Nicole. And great having you, Sandra van Eden, a horticulture and post-harvest production lecturer at Alsenburg Agricultural Training Institute in the Western Cape. We now switch things up from strawberry production to seeds and breeding techniques. We're joined by Dr. Magdalene Siliers, Policy and Research Officer at the South African National Seed Organization, to unpack an appeal lodged against a decision to classify all new breeding techniques under the Genetically Modified Organisms Act 15 of 1997. Dr. Siliers, as a starting point, could you define new breeding technologies and how it differs from genetically modified organisms? I think the most important thing to listen out for here is that we are talking about new breeding technologies. And when we talk about genetically modified organisms, we are actually talking about an organism. So genetically modified organisms is an organism which was made by adding external DNA to the organism. Examples of genetically modified organism is maize that have been genetically modified to be more resistant to stem borers. So that means they have insect resistance tolerance as well as herbicide tolerance to the 
chemical Roundup or glyphosate as we know it. Where new breeding techniques are actually a range of different new techniques in the genetics field, which is not new. These techniques were there for many, many years and has only been discovered, if I can say, recently. And some of them have been used for many, many years even. But the difference comes in these new breeding techniques can make a range of different products. And some of these products can be genetically modified organisms with external DNA inserted into them, or they can be products that is similar to conventional breeding type products that was done with conventional breeding over a few years time. So it's a range of techniques and not only just the organism thereof. Now, as I mentioned in my introductory comments, an appeal has been lodged against South Africa's regulatory approach to classify all new breeding techniques under the Genetically Modified Organisms Act 15 of 1997. Now, Magdalene, what does this actually mean in layman's terms? And why would it be so negative for new breeding technologies to be assessed in this way? It's important to note that for the industry, we don't say that all products that is made by new breeding techniques should not be regulated under the GMO Act. The ones that are GMOs should be regulated under the GMO Act. We are saying that the products that are similar to conventional breeding, the products that could actually occur in nature over many, many years and have the same changes as normal conventional breeding, should not be regulated in the GMO Act. So that is what the industry is saying. I hope that explains it a bit better. And why we say this is negative is the fact that these products could occur naturally. Where do we pull the line? Are we also going to go to products that have just normal mutations, which happened with mutations breeding, which we have been using in South Africa for many years? Are we suddenly also going to put them under the GMO Act? And this negative effect that this will have is not only on the regulation, it goes right back to our consumers of these products. I'm sure we'll get to answer these questions later, but for now, if I want to say why is it so negative that it's being assessed this way, is that we can't actually measure it. We can't see that this product has been genome edited because there is no external DNA inside. And then it makes it very difficult. And these products is going to be difficult to regulate in that way. Now, besides the points that you've mentioned, highlighting some of my next question, what are some of the widespread implications for South Africa and specifically Mzanzi's innovators when it comes to these new regulations? There's quite a few things. Let's first talk about Mzanzi's innovators or just our researchers in South Africa. I'm not sure if you know this, but there is no GMO product on the market that a South African company or South African innovator has made. This was all made internationally. And the reason for this is, of course, these products have been tested. It has been patented in another country and they have been proven safe. But our GMO regulations are quite strict, which, of course, has always been a very good thing because we want to ensure our products that we give to our consumers are safe. However, there's a very big cost associated with the risk analysis. 
And for products that are technically not GMOs because they do not have external DNA inside, it is almost impossible for a, I can't say impossible, but not probable for a small South African innovator or small South African seed company to take on these extreme costs to get a product on market through the GMO Act and regulations. And that is how it, all of the products has actually always been in the international market. So it really puts pressure on our innovators. It actually cuts off their hands that we might not get South African products into this market, which of course will negatively affect our economy. And yes, this is one of the implications in South Africa is that it can negatively affect our economy. In countries like Argentina, where these regulations has been in place for five years, they could see more than a 50% increase in national companies getting products on the market. You mentioned costs now. What are some of the costing that you're referring to in that regard? I can't give you exact figures on the costing, but the, the GMO Act works in a way where there are different permit conditions which has to be adhered to, different way that plants have to be planted, trials that have to be done, experiments that have to prove the safety of it. Although these crops have been proven to be safe for the last 25 years, this still has to continue and this is what just makes that exorbitant costs. So it's like taking one of these plants that actually can be produced naturally in, by conventional breeding in nature and taking them through this whole process with these exorbitant costs. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks so much for explaining that. Now, in your press release, you explained that there'll be a broader impact on food security and international trade and trading partners. And I think you've just mentioned that as well in response to my previous question. But could you maybe unpack this a little bit more and explaining to us what it means exactly? This decision on these regulations is being considered worldwide. It's not only something that is happening in South Africa. And various countries have already put forward how they are going to regulate this new breeding techniques or some of the products, as explained earlier. And a lot of our trading partners have made a decision that they will not regulate. So that means that certain types of products made by new breeding techniques, which does not have external DNA inside, will not be regulated according to those countries' GMO acts. So that means that South Africa will now have products, perhaps on our market, which is considered as a GMO, but not considered as a GMO in a country of one of our trading partners. If you look at countries like the US, Argentina, American countries, countries like Japan, even China has now updated their regulations. In Africa, Nigeria and Kenya has updated their regulations to say that certain of these products will fall outside ambit of the GMO Act. So it's going to be really difficult to actually have a type of import-export process when we are in a disaster. Example like in when we are undergoing a severe drought year and we urgently need to import food to feed our country. And all these countries can provide us with these products, but they fall within the GMO Act in South Africa. Which company are going to take up all these exorbitant costs to make sure that we can get these products in South Africa on the market? So it really is a difficult problem when it comes to food security. 
And internationally, we are now a step behind some of our most important trading partners. So the trickling down and the impact is definitely reaches a lot further than we can even imagine in, in this case. Can we also speak about what the direct impact would be on Mzanzi's farmers, agriculturalists, and then specifically focusing on breeding methods? I think the important thing here is that every seed that a farmer puts into the soil has been bred at some stage in its life. Mostly the human race has been breeding with seed and with plants for more than thousands and thousands of years. So these new breeding techniques are just something new to our breeding technology tool set. And how this will affect our farmers if we can't use the entire tool set available to us is that the farmers will not have these new technology and the best varieties for their environmental conditions or the hurdles that they face. Example, extreme climates or higher disease pressure. Those are something that the farmers have to overcome and they will not have the best suited varieties that is possibly out there and available in the world for them to overcome these challenges. Thank you so much. You've given us so much to think about um, in terms of how this will impact not only farmers, but also consumers. Before we let you go, Magdalene, to those who's not in the plant breeding or agri-science space, what would you like to share in closing and maybe also just what are the next steps that we should now be looking at in terms of all of this and understanding it and making sense of it? The important thing for people that are not in the agri space to always consider is that when you go to any grocery store or supermarket, all those fresh produce, everything that was produced from grain, dry content, all of that had to start at seed at some point. And if we can't have the best seeds, then of course this is going to affect the consumer severely in the future. Because we have to make sure that we give the best seed to the farmers so that the consumers can have the best produce with the best nutritional value that can make sure that we feed our country. When we're looking at going forward, this might be a lengthy process. A appeal process takes some time. And we are, as industry, very open to talk with the Department of Agriculture on this matter and hope that we will have fruitful discussions coming out of these discussions that lies ahead of us. Great having you, Dr. Magdalene Siliers, Policy and Research Officer at the South African National Seed Organization. At Food Firm Zanzi, we understand that all farmers have to start somewhere and choosing a profitable commodity can change the game for any new farmer. We now check in with a few agri-experts here to share a few tips on new farming trends and vital aspects to consider when stepping into this dynamic sector. First up, Lunati Sakanyane, an agricultural economist, highlights how new farmers can determine trending commodities. Farming trends, there is no universal farming trends, if you may say. Blueberries might work for someone in the Western Cape, but they might not necessarily work for a farmer who is in the free state. And so what will constitute an opportunity for farmers will obviously depend on a wide range of factors. Obviously, looking at your surroundings, what is mostly demanded by the market that you're servicing. And of course, I'm very much aware that the market that you're servicing might not necessarily demand that which you are able to produce you know, within, you know, the conditions which you, you farm. So I think what you should do is you should try to make the most of what you have at your disposal. 
if the conditions allow you to, to diversify into something else that you know has a potential growth, not only in your immediate environment, but in other areas as well, then I think you should go into it. Of course, as with everything, planning is everything, right? You gotta make sure that you won't be running at a loss, obviously, and you gotta make sure that, that you know there's a financial slash economic justification for your action. And I just wanna talk about something that was briefly alluded to yeah, about diversification, right? We often talk about diversification as you know, sort of risk mitigation strategy. But I think what we should be doing is viewing diversification as an opportunity seizing avenue, right? What that basically means is that you should diversify, not because you're scared, you know, a particular crop that you specialize in won't do that well, let's say this year, but you should diversify because you are looking around and you're seeing opportunities and you seek to exploit those opportunities. And so in terms of where you can find, you know, what will work again, at a very micro level, I'd say look around you. At a macro level, I'd say look at, you know, publications like Farmers Weekly. Follow people who regularly publish, you know, what's hot and new in the agri-space like Food from Zanzi. Food from Zanzi runs quite a lot of interesting articles on what's happening in the country. And up-to-date articles that are specifically targeted, obviously broadly, at the agri-sector, but specifically at emerging farmers. I would say look into those publications, see if there's something that could potentially work in your environment, then, you know, go into it. Technology and data integration is key to stay abreast of what's trending. And Zamo Shongwe, Bootle Farmers Academy Finance and Business Director, outlines why it's vital for new farmers. You couldn't possibly farm if you were not integrating your data. So I think Tamsin and I are speaking about uh, mock recalls. Uh, when um, the farmer support officers from Bootle arrive on a farm, what they'd like to see is your farm um, file, and that would have... Um, a number of data that shows what's been happening in your farm in, in the last month or so, and that would be from HR records to, I mean, very first things if someone ever arrives on your farm, whether they're a visitor, whether they, they came to purchase or they came to do an inspection, you know, you should be able to trace to see the signature that somebody has signed and, you know, they have been on your farm and, you know, what they did on the farm on what day. Because if, it, if there's an outbreak of anything, you want to be able to look back at your books and see who brought what to the farm. Let me just give you an example of also how uh, data integration would work with, with smallholder farmers. So we had a COVID outbreak. 2021 January, the opening of schools was delayed. And quite a few of our farmers farm to produce for the school nutritional programs across the country where the government feeds uh, learners at the school, right? Which means that when you are planning your, your farming, your, your production plan, you are saying you, you plan it in such a way that your first harvest would be in January into February onward so that the learners would have food when they come back. Now, last year, opening of schools was delayed due to the high COVID numbers. And a lot of the farmers lost the food, the price firstly plummets. And then some of the farmers tried to delay putting it in the market, thinking things are going to change. Eventually, some of them had to suffer losses because of that. Now, since that has happened, we go back to the farmers and we ask, if that's who your client is, right? How do you get that data? Since last year, what have you done to ensure that that doesn't happen to you again, right? How are you making sure that your production plan, you have a number of weeks in which you, not everything is harvested at the same time for one, right? How are you also looking at rainfall patterns? How are you looking at the demand for longer shelf life products? What can you plant that has a longer shelf life so that you can hold back if you need to for a couple of weeks? Now, of course, traceability and compliance is key for new farmers in Mzanzi. And Tamsin Davids, the owner of Crystal Consulting, Food Safety and Quality Solutions, explains why this is for traceability to work in your food safety system, you need to, we call it mock recalls. You need to be able to trace every ingredient that you put into your final product to the source and then the end user. 
end user would normally be the client that bought it, let's say a retailer. But if we're referring to the traceability system of the blueberries in the industry, a lot of the exports, you need to adhere to phytosanitary regulations and you need to have a food safety system in place. And that seems to be a challenging thing for our emerging farmers and our small scale farmers to actually implement a system, whether it is Global Gap or HACCP or FCC 22000. And one of the things that stood out is we don't really know as farmers how this is going to benefit us in the future. And that is why I also want to highlight the issue that is ongoing with KFC and the lack of potatoes. But they are still importing potatoes from different countries, especially uh, what's happening in Kenya, where they are not sourcing potatoes from local farmers because they are not Global Gap certified, any system certified. That system serves as a cover for you as the retailer or as the client, as well as the farmer. Let's call it peace of mind to say that you are putting out a product into the market that adheres to certain specific that's in place, which protects you as the consumer, firstly you as the consumer, but also you as the producer. And I think we need to place some emphasis on getting the certification and doing the traceability steps. I would see that your market would grow significantly if you just start doing the small things and work towards the bigger goal, which is getting certified. Thanks for joining Lunati, Shakanyane, Zama Shongwe, and of course, Tams and Davids. Before we let you go, next up, our book of the week, as chosen by farmers, is The Simple Path to Wealth, Your Roadmap to Financial Independence and a Rich-Free Life by J.L. Collins. The book grew out of a series of letters the author wrote for his daughter concerning various things, mostly about money and investing. Next, the author explains what wealth means to you and how it is tied to a free life. To me personally, what wealth represents is security and freedom. So security to protect you from what the world can throw at you and freedom to chart your own path in a way that you couldn't do without the resource. On the financial point of view, I suppose when I think about what the benchmarks are for are you wealthy or not, have you achieved financial independence or not, what has come to be called the 4% rule is a good guideline. That comes out of a thing called the Trinity Study. And without belaboring that point, it simply suggests that if you have enough assets, that 4% of that amount can cover your annual expenses, you can consider yourself financially independent. So you can work at it from two different directions. You could say, well, I have a million dollars, so 4% of that is $40,000. Can I live on $40,000 a year or not? And therein lies the answer to your question. Or you can look at it from the other direction. You can say, you know, I need $40,000 to live on. So how much do I need to be financially independent? You multiply 40000 by, as it happens, 25. You get a million dollars, and there's your answer. So it really depends on what your needs are. The reason that I prefer keeping it simple is simple is simply more powerful. Simple is what gets you the best results. And in this case, when I talk about simplicity, I'm talking about index funds and specifically broad-based stock and then bond index funds when you bring them into it. There are a lot of reasons that simplicity is an advantage. It keeps your costs low. It keeps your life simpler. It makes things, when the time comes, easier on your heirs. But the most important thing is it is the most powerful way to reach financial independence. Agriculture is not just about farming. 
It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. Right through all departments and companies within the VKB Group, we know that farming is not just a job. It's a way of life. Let VKB help you in all aspects of the food value chain by efficiently reducing costs and optimizing value. Follow VKB on Facebook or vkb.co.za to find out how VKB can help you. VKB, for the love of the land. Sounds like a nice read. Now remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion of your own, feel free to email us on info at foodfromzanzi.co.za. Now before we let you go, our farmer tip of the week is about registering your farming business and it comes from accountant Lungelo Unkwanya. Basically, in business perception is everything. As much as maybe you can start a business as a sole trader or partnership, which is an unregistered version of a business relationship. You can start your business as a sole trader or a partnership, but eventually you'll have to register with the Department of Trading Industry or CFPC, as it is called, as a private company. This will allow you to, obviously, as a farmer, to have documents such as tax clearance, BEE certificate, and be able to register on the CSD, which is the government database, for you to be able to get tenders. And if you're not such as that, you can't have this document, even though you're a sole trader, partnership a legit business but without you being a private company or a registered company you will not have access to these documents and most suppliers or most com- companies stakeholders they require these documents uh, for them to work with you as, 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 as a company i believe that as much as sometimes a startup farmers or just start as a small farmer with no formalization but it's important that we start thinking about formalizing our businesses because uh, you are perceived to be a legit business if you are registered, even though you are a legit business, though you're not registered, but perception in business is everything. And so it is important that we register with state tax compliance and we have our compliance documents in order in all times. And our Farmer Tip of the Week from accountant Lungelo Nguanye brings us to the end of this week's Farmer's Insight Track, proudly brought to you by Food Form Zanzi. Now for more daily inspirational stories about the farmers and agriculturalists to go above and beyond to feed South Africa, visit foodformzanzi.co.za or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Twitter. Plus, don't forget our weekly sessions on Twitter spaces called Gather to Grow. Now, of course, remember, if you love this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. And be sure to also check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news across the continent. From me, Duncan Masiwa, Don Dumdu, Nicole Ludov, and our producer, Megan van der Fendt, and the rest of Team Food from Zanzi, have a great week. What joins a continent but its continuous flow over mountains, through rivers, in the rhythm of the land? What ignites its future? but the promise to fulfill, to protect and grow the very life of tomorrow. This is why we do what we do under the African blue. Corteva. Keep growing.